Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The private sector is on the front lines of this battle space, and they are not prepared to deal with hostile forces from an adversarial state. China's approach to all of this seems to be a bit more strategic, a bit more state-driven. Whereas China and India is this sort of story of gradually embracing the globalization of innovation, the U.S. has been kind of all over the place. If this were the Cold War, maybe we're in 1951 or 1952. We're just beginning to actually create doctrine. G'day and welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Catherine Manstead and this is the podcast that looks at national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the Australian National University. Now, in this bumper episode, we are delving into the intersection between security and economics. With a trade war, maybe even a technology war, between China and the US deepening, global stouches over companies like Huawei and ZTE, as well as rising attention on the role of geoeconomics in our region, uh, particularly through the vehicle of China's Belt and Road Initiative, this seems to be a very timely topic. The private sector is also increasingly on the front lines of national security. Companies are now the engine for dual-use innovation, which is both economically important and strategically significant. They build platforms like Facebook and WeChat that can also be co-opted by hostile nation-states. And increasingly, companies are targets themselves of cyber attacks and economic coercion. Today, we're going to hear from two experts exploring different aspects of the geoeconomic puzzle. Later, um, we'll have a conversation with Dr. Samantha Ravitch from the Washington-based Foundation for Defence of Democracies. Dr. Ravitch is the chairman of FDD's Centre on Cyber and Technology Innovation and its transformative Cyber Innovation Lab, as well as the principal investigator on FDD's Cyber-Enabled Economic Warfare Project. She's also a tech entrepreneur herself, not to mention a former Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Cheney. Recently, Dr. Ravitch was appointed to the congressionally mandated Cyberspace Solarium Commission, and I should add that she's speaking today with us purely in her personal capacity. But first, I chat with Dr. Andy Kennedy, currently an Associate Professor of Policy and Governance at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy. He's published widely on comparative foreign policy issues and nurtures a particular interest in all things China, India and the United States. His most recent book, The Conflicted Superpower, explores a phenomenon he likes to call the globalisation of innovation and some of the policy, economic and, of course, national security implications of this trend for America. 
G'day, Andy, and welcome to the National Security Podcast. Now, we've been reading your recent book, The Conflicted Superpower, America's Collaboration with China and India in Global Innovation, which seems to me to combine a number of extraordinarily timely and interesting uh, topics right now for NatSec followers. So for me, the first question really is, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a basic question, but what is the globalization of innovation, which is the, the heart of your book and a, a trend you really pick out. What is what is that term and, and why uh, does it, is it important for NATSEC practitioners to be paying attention to this trend? Well, thanks, Catherine, and thanks for that very kind uh, introduction. Um, basically, what what I mean by the globalization of innovation is the globalization of inputs to the creation of new technologies. And I basically distinguish between uh, two kinds uh, of inputs. Uh, one is basically brain power, the labor uh, that drives innovation activity. Uh, and then the second is the globalization of research and development uh, activity. Um, whether you're talking about multinational R&D overseas, international R&D alliances, venture capital investing, uh, all this kind of activity. Uh, so it's those two things together uh, that make up um, uh, the globalization of, of innovation. Now, one thing that struck me as really interesting is, is you kind of trace the history of, of these two inputs in your book. Um, and the way in which R&D has internationalized and also commercialized struck me as quite interesting because if you think about back in the ye olde industrial revolution days, it was often kind of solo entrepreneurs or even amateurs uh, like Thomas Edison and, and his mates who were at the forefront of global innovation. But today it's quite a corporate industrial process. How does that play into um, the trends that we're seeing in, in the policies of countries related to innovation? Well, it is. It is a much more um, sort of corporate uh, uh, trend. It, it really, I, I mean, it developed from individuals um, and individual geniuses, as you talk about, to a more corporate but still very national kind of activity. Uh, and later um, today into a, a corporate and more uh, transnational global uh, kind of endeavor. Uh, although I should say that for, for example, for U.S. multinationals, um, most of their R&D activity um, is still conducted um, uh, in their home country. Um, so most R&D spending that they, that they do is, mo is still in their home country. So um, uh, that's one of the actually least globalized aspects of, of this, whole, uh, this whole trend. Uh, and now what countries are doing are, is sort of competing for that activity. Uh, it's still heavily concentrated, but countries are trying to attract that kind of activity. And also, um, as you look at sort of the rivalry between the US and China, um, trying to limit the kinds of things that other countries can do uh, in their country. And so you mentioned the rivalry between China and the U.S. Um, one thing that, that is, is interesting is often when we think about the contest between a rising power China and a status quo power the U.S., we often think in kind of very Thucydian terms. We think about um, what motiv might motivate conflict is things like military power or fear and honour and interest. Um, but you also say that it's really important to look at and understand the role of the innovation sector and um, the indeed the globalisation and trade that occurs between different countries' innovation sectors in order to understand um, global power and, and, and power transitions more, um, more deeply. How important 
is is the globalisation of innovation as a, as a lens, I guess, for national security practitioners to be looking through? I, I think it's really important, and uh, and it's really you've really seen it come to the fore over the past uh, few years. Um, but it's always been important, uh, and and it remains extremely important. It's important because innovation and high tech leadership uh, is is a tremendous source uh, of wealth and power. Uh, it's a key driver of of economic development. Um, uh, whether you're talking about developing countries that are trying to transition from imitating uh, more advanced countries to actually being innovation leaders themselves. Uh, and it's very important for more developed countries. This is the, um, the, main, the big source of economic growth in, in the developed world as well. So it's incredibly important. Uh, and it also obviously has uh, big uh, military and security implications uh, as well. When you think about um, uh, the new technologies that have emerged, or a lot of the new technologies that have emerged over the past century um, uh, or more, um, they often have important military spillovers. Whether you're thinking about the airplane, you're thinking about nuclear energy, you're thinking about the internet and artificial intelligence, all these things have big military implications. Uh, and, and so, which country leads in the development of these new technologies has potentially a big impact on the development of new military capabilities as well. And I guess this leads to something you've looked at a bit, which is the different way big powers have chosen to instrument their policies towards innovation. So it seems to me to be a bit of a dance between openness and trying to take advantage of those inputs you spoke about, the labour, the brain power, and the R&D to, to, to bolster one's own innovation. But then on the flip side, the, the risks and the need to kind of keep some barriers up so that other countries don't poach your labour or your, or your capital or your good ideas. How has the US chosen to, to mix its policy settings in response to this globalization of innovation trend that you have identified? Well, this is really the question that, that in a way drove me to write this book. And, you know, when you, what was so interesting about the US is that it's so different from China and India. Um, China and India have basically opened themselves to global innovation, to the movement of brain power, uh, students and skilled workers across borders, uh, to uh, transnational R&D activity. Um, they're sort of hoping that all of this activity will have positive spillovers for them and that they will become, play a bigger role in, um, in global innovation uh, as well. And the U.S. is quite different. The U.S. is a, is a, is a much more conflicted uh, approach to um, the globalization of innovation. It's quite open in some ways to it. Uh, it's quite open to uh, international students, uh, for example. It's sort of a little bit less open in other ways, so like the, the sort of globalization of research and development activity. And it's least open to the cross-border movement uh, of skilled labor through things like the um, H-1B visa program and the um, employment-based green cards. Uh, that's where it's least open. And in fact, its openness in that area has varied over time. So whereas China and India is this sort of story of gradually embracing the globalization of innovation, the U.S. has been kind of all over the place. And I wanted to understand why that was the case. 
I want to come back in a moment to exactly why that is the case and some of the actors and interests driving US policy. But before I do, I did want to ask you about, I know you mentioned in your book that India and China tend to have a bit more of a state-driven approach to uh, innovation policy. Uh, India, to some extent, certainly its leaders like to profess that India will be a leader um, in certain areas. In a, in a way, you don't necessarily see, see the same rhetoric coming out of the, the US, but certainly for China, it seems to me that the pursuit of innovation is very much uh, state-led and in some cases, uh, a cooperation between the state and the private sector in ways that you don't see in the US. Um you also mentioned, I guess, the openness, as you said before, uh, seems to be the ordering principle of, of Chinese policy here. But is there a little bit of a retreat back from that um, recently in terms of trying to bring Chinese students back to China or trying to harness the Chinese diaspora um, abroad to contribute back to the, the Chinese innovation pool? Is there a bit of a closing of the open doors that you just spoke about? Well, um, it's a very interesting question. Um, first, I would say that you mentioned the sort of state-driven approach. That's clearly quite evident in China. In India, it's embraced this globalization of innovation, but it's, it's much more of an ad hoc uh, sort of process. Um, uh, they, they certainly have their own ambitions and their own goals, um, but the extent to which India is really in the driver's seat of the way it relates to global innovation is... Uh, uh, is something that let's let's just say it's uh, it's not necessarily apparent that they are driving it, <laughs> but nonetheless they have they have embraced it um, in their own way, and um, with China and its degree of openness, I wouldn't say that the effort to bring students back to China is as a sign of them being more closed. What they want is Chinese students and Chinese workers to go overseas, learn lots of great things, uh, and then come back to China. Uh, they want to compete uh, for that diasporic talent, if you will, uh, after it's gone uh, abroad. And so that whole strategy relies on students and workers going abroad in the first place uh, and then coming back. Oh, I so think fascinating. So what you're saying is they're not going from open to close. They're actually going from open to even better and smarter policies of, of openness to achieve what what openness is set out to do? Well, I, I, I hesitate to say them, to call them overly smart. They're certainly trying to be strategic. <laughs> right. Uh, but um, uh, they are, they're trying to take advantage of the globalization of brain power um, uh, in, in, in their own fairly um, uh, state-oriented way. Um, and, and the question remains, you know, to what extent they'll be able to do that. Um, you know, the, the U.S. is making life more difficult for Chinese students in the United States right now. Um, uh, and that does clearly have the potential to backfire on the U.S. and drive away a lot of very smart and talented uh, students, especially from China. Uh, on the other hand, um, political changes in China uh, in recent years have made it um, a, a less open, uh, more sort of politically uh, restrictive, a more ideological uh, kind of environment and, and, and an environment in which information and, and information outside China can be more difficult to access. Uh, and so in its own way, China is shooting itself in the foot as well. So this is fascinating. I guess you could say both countries face a paradox of sorts between trying to assess those trade-offs between being open and also being protective. 
Which brings me to what I found to be some of the most fascinating parts of your work, which is the way in which the US decides its policy here. And I think a lot of NatSec watchers often assume that states engage in very rational, very real politic kind of ways. They have a strategy, they follow through, and the policy reflects that. But you surface that it's often domestic drivers which are most influential in in how the US uh, decides to do its security and economic policy around innovation. What were some of the the findings in in your book? Can you share them with our listeners about the, the way that domestic actors and interests drive innovation policy in the States? Yeah, thanks. And it's a great question. And I didn't necessarily expect to find this when I started out on this project. Uh, But nonetheless, I really found that domestic politics was really driving the broad pattern uh, of US policy towards global innovation over the past few decades. Basically, you can think of the US as having interest groups who are for and against openness with regard to global innovation. On the side of openness, you have what I call the high-tech community. Uh, high-tech companies like Microsoft, Intel, and Google, um, and research universities like MIT and Harvard. On the other side, you get a range of opponents uh, that resist a more open approach to global innovation. Uh, And these range from uh, labor groups to anti-immigration groups, uh, even the Tea Party uh, in in some cases. And what really drives U.S. policy is that balance you get between the proponents and opponents uh, of, uh, of openness. Uh, when when the high tech community faces very little opposition, uh, which has generally been the case with regard to students, um, policy is very open. Uh, and when they face opposition from labor, um, it's, politics is much more contentious, um, but policy is still fairly open uh, because labor is relatively weak, especially high tech labor mm. is relatively weak compared to. Uh, the high-tech firms that we're talking about here, which have all kinds of expertise and money and access to policymakers. I think lobbying in in DC, it's the big tech firms that are now, if not the top, approaching the top uh, spenders of money in in DC on lobbying. Does that that map onto these policies or is it... Is it a bit more complicated than that? Oh, that's certainly part of their influence. The money is certainly part of their influence. but, But just as important is is the expertise and the way that they can, um, you know, speak very authoritatively on issues like, you know, does the U.S. have an adequate supply of high tech labor, for example? Uh, it's very hard to, for members of Congress to argue with people like Bill Gates on questions like that. Is is that too? Do you think the U.S. is susceptible to those types of narratives because it knows that its dominance in the international system for seventy years has been? Uh, undergirded by the fact that it's the world's technology superpower. So do you think it's more susceptible or leaders are more susceptible to messages or of, of fear or opportunity from the tech sector just because there is that strong relationship? Well, that's another um, sort of uh, pillar uh, of their of their uh, influence is really uh, we've talked about money, we've talked about expertise, but also the prestige 
uh, of these companies. Um, and it's just there, as, as some of their opponents will say, you know, these people are rock stars. Uh, <laughs> and it's very hard to ignore rock stars. But they're not omnipotent. And, and that's the last point I want to make here, that when they come up against opposition from some of these large, uh, what we call citizen groups, mm. um, especially um, anti-immigration groups or the Tea Party, um, who could really mobilize a lot of voters to uh, protest and contact members of Congress, that this is a game that the tech companies are not good at playing, um, this kind of grassroots politics game. Uh, and they've been losing uh, at this game to some of these groups. So, um, What's a good uh, example of one of those key losses, would you say? The, the, the big losses have been the failure to pass uh, comprehensive immigration reform in the U.S., um, which we saw in 2006 and 2007 uh, when you had President Bush and um, leaders of Congress all supporting uh, this kind of reform, which would have liberalized the U.S. approach to, uh, to skilled immigration in particular and really opened things up more. And then uh, subsequently under Obama in 2013, a comprehensive bill that would have accomplished a lot of those things as well uh, was defeated. And each time those bills went down with strong support from high-tech firms and research universities and really strident opposition from anti-immigration groups. It's interesting too what, what you're surfacing there is in a sense the executive in, in the US, the president, remains a little bit, well, has a little bit less power than we might think that they would in shaping policy in this area. So the Obama era um, defeats that you were just referring to, I think, uh, was it anti-offshoring legislation for R&D that Obama mm. really wanted to to bring in and they, they failed. So to me, again, as kind of someone looking at this from a, from a national security, national strategy perspective, it's fascinating but also a little bit scary that a lot of the responses and policies on the US side here are not necessarily driven by a strategic vision or, again, this kind of realpolitik. They're, they're driven from domestic interests, which, I mean, in a sense, is that is that dangerous for a country trying to do strategy and trying to engage in a pretty, you know, something we, we've said is pretty essential to global power, global wealth, even power transitions writ large to be um, so dependent on on vested interests at, at a domestic level? Or is that just something we should expect and kind of roll with? It, it certainly can be problematic. And you know, scholars, famous scholars like Mansur Olson, for example, have written that over time, stable democracies succumb to what he calls institutional sclerosis as interest groups multiply and exert more and more influence over legislation, and, and legislation no longer serves the, the national interest or the common interest, but all these sort of very particular narrow interests that these well-organized groups are, are, are pursuing. Um, and, and so one question I, I sort of wrestle with in the conclusion is whether uh, we see evidence of this in the case of the U.S. And, and I think in in one case, you probably do on, on with regard to skilled immigration in particular. Um, the, the U.S., as you say, the, the U.S. president and, and members of leaders of Congress uh, have not been able to drive uh, legislation through through Congress in the way that they would like in pursuit of the national interest. 
uh, and they've been blocked by interest groups. Uh, and that, that has not um, served the U.S. well. Um, on the other hand, um, you see that you know, other aspects of U.S. policy um, have been you know, the openness towards uh, foreign students, for example, has helped the U.S. maintain its technological leadership uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's not simply the case that the U.S. is succumbing to this kind of sclerosis. Uh, and um, I think it, I, I, I retain hope that the U.S. will be able to act in a more strategic way uh, over time. So to round out the conversation then, I guess let's come back to China because we did mention at the beginning that China's approach to all of this seems to be a bit more strategic, a bit more state-driven. And you've talked about elsewhere, I know, that China has a bit of a drive to be an innovation power. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Why is the pursuit of being an innovation power so important to, to China? And does it, and if so, how, does it challenge the U.S.? Uh, or U.S. interests in this in this pursuit of of innovation power. Yeah, so this was um, this was the subject of an article I wrote with uh, Darren Lim uh, here at the ANU uh, last year called "The Innovation Imperative," and uh, basically we started from the point that um, as scholars of international relations and international security, we often take for granted um, this idea that rising powers will continue to rise, that their economies will continue to grow. Um, and, and now we know, especially from um, economic scholarship of the past few decades, that we really shouldn't do that, that these, these um, uh, developing countries can fall into what's, call, what, what's often called the middle income trap. Um, where they kind of stagnate before they really reach developed country status. And to avoid that, one of the things that countries need, that developing countries need, is access to technology. Um, and this creates what we call the innovation imperative. Um, there's basically three ways uh, in which they can try to access technology, um, transacting, so basically buying technology, uh, taking, which is either stealing technology or, or accessing open source uh, technology uh, that's, that's free, um, uh, and making technology, sort of generating your own new, um, new technologies. Uh, and China has been very active uh, in all three uh, of these dimensions. Um, and, and in terms of what it means for the U.S. and how it threatens the U.S., uh, basically, this kind of uh, this innovation activity uh, on China's part can generate two kinds of what we call strategic externalities uh, for the U.S. Um, one one kind is what we call security externalities, uh, and this is activity that somehow adds to the rising power's military capabilities. Uh, and the second kind. Uh, is what we call order externalities. Uh, and this is activity that weakens the, the international institutional order that the uh, dominant state has set up 
to capitalize on its position as the world technology leader. So uh, the protection of intellectual property rights, for example, is very, very important uh, here. So to the extent that China's activities um, generate these security and order externalities for the U.S., uh, they, um, uh, they harm important U.S. interests. I guess to round out as the final question then, so China, innovation imperative, making, I love that phrase, is it taking, transacting or making, mm-hmm. uh, which rubs up against the US view of the world, which has a particular view on intellectual property and the rules-based order and so forth. If you were advising the US government on how, given the the imperative for China to, to innovate um, and to develop economically, on how the US should respond to that sensibly. I think one thing we've already discussed is have a strategy. That sounds good. But what would that strategy, what might some of it actually entail if you were to give that advice? I would say two things. Um, I would say that, one, the US, while it needs to uh, – play defense very well. It needs to protect technologies that uh, U.S. companies and uh, scientists and universities have have created. Uh, it also needs to worry a lot about offense. Uh, it can't just worry about keeping technologies away from China. It needs to worry about creating new technologies uh, and extending its, um, its lead as the technological leader. Um, defense only is ultimately a losing game. You've got to keep putting points on the board as the world technology leader. Uh, and the second thing I would say is that if you're going to go after China and try to reshape the way things work and the way that China behaves in the sort of technology and innovation space, you need to bring along your allies. You shouldn't, you shouldn't go it alone. Um, you need countries like Japan and Korea, uh, the European uh, allies, um, Australia as well. Bring them along and you can exert a lot more pressure uh, on China that way. Don't try to do it all alone. Well, thank you very much, Andy. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, we'll also have a link to your book in, in our um, pod uh, description for interested listeners who want to delve into this further. And um, we will be back on the National, Podca- uh, National Security Podcast soon with more things touching on some of these things we've been discussing today around geoeconomics, innovation and the tech rivalry that we see perhaps uh, becoming a new ordering principle for the global order. So more from us soon. And thanks again, Andy, for your uh, conversation today. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Andy Kennedy, for enlightening us on a little-treated topic, really, the globalisation of innovation and some of the really vexed questions that that poses for policymakers, particularly in America, but no doubt also in Australia and our region as well. Now for something, I hesitate to say completely different because it is on trend, but something a little bit different is to hear now from an expert from America on a concept um, that she has been one of the leading proponents of, which is economic warfare. This is Dr. Dr. Samantha Ravitch, uh, really an expert on all things cyber technology and increasingly on the way in which states co-opt economic tools to enhance their power on the world stage. G'day, Samantha, and welcome to the National Security Podcast. Now, you're one of the intellectual architects of a term known as cyber-enabled economic warfare. For national security watchers, this 
came to our attention first last year in the US cyber strategy, but it's something you've been thinking about for a bit longer than that. What exactly is cyber-enabled economic warfare? Well, thank you for having me. Um, yes, it, it, it was in the national security strategy um, of the United States, uh, put out about a little over a year ago. And uh, cyber-enabled economic warfare refers to the use of cyber means um, by an adversary against another country's economic wherewithal in order to weaken that country militarily, politically, or strategically. So it is not, what it is not, is a cyber attack simply to get money, um, to get information to sell on the dark web. Um, uh, it is not corporate espionage only, uh, but what it can be those things. But in addition to those things, it is to undermine the key economic elements of a country in order to weaken it militarily, politically, or strategically. So is cyber-enabled economic warfare a hypothetical future threat we need to be thinking about, or are we already, in some sense, in a, in a state of cyber-enabled economic warfare? We're very much in it. Um, we've been in it for uh, potentially a decade or eight or 10 years. Um, you know, we first started seeing it really come to the fore in countries like South Korea um, in 2011, 2012, 2013, where Pyongyang was using cyber means to undermine key economic elements of South Korea, going after their media, going after their financial institutions, going after their manufacturing institutions, not because Pyongyang wanted, you know, trade secrets about how to, you know, build a better air conditioner or a better washing machine, right? But it was truly to destabilize um, or, uh, or otherwise cause concern and ripples through the economic basis of South Korea um, in order to change the policy direction of the government. The first big attacks were dark soul these ones in South Korea, um, which came about at the same time that the U.S. and South Korea were having joint military operations. So you can see how this works. It gives an asymmetrical advantage um, to a country like North Korea against the South, against the U.S. and the attacks on, on Sony uh, Corporation a number of years ago. It wasn't simply because North Korea wanted a movie industry. It was to change the, the direction of how the country and, and its economic base were we're acting towards it. But we've seen it in the case of Iran um, attacking U.S. banks and financial institutions, uh, Iran attacking Aramco, um, as well as uh, certain actions taken by Russia and China against Western democratic countries. So I guess that brings into light an interesting dynamic of this type of conflict, because you mentioned the attack against Sony Pictures, the attack against the U.S. financial system, Saudi Aramco. These are all attacks against private sector entities. When we're talking about cyber-enabled economic warfare, as national security kind of government or policymakers, how should we think, be thinking about this private sector dynamic? Right, exactly. We, we need to be thinking about this private sector dynamic because in Western free market democracies, um, the base, the strength of, the, of our country is the private sector. 
right? I mean, that's where innovation comes from. That's where progress comes from. That's where prosperity comes from. And the government grows out of the will of the people, um, but their their welfare is really from the private sector. Um, so be, uh, as an adversary attacks that private sector, it is really um, the most important, yet in some ways the most vulnerable um, parts of the country. So uh, in terms of the national security professionals who really have grown up thinking that national security is only within the tight confines of, you know, the small group of diplomats and armed forces and intelligence professionals. No longer. The private sector is on the front lines of this battle space. And they are not prepared, with obvious good reason, to deal with hostile forces from an adversarial state. It strikes me, though, that economic warfare isn't necessarily something that's completely new. I mean, ever since kind of the rival village would pop over next door to burn crops or the concept of siege warfare, naval blockades, using economic tools to achieve strategic objectives isn't something that's new. But what does the cyber adjective add or change or indeed does it change economic warfare um, moving forward, and well, it ramps it up, um, it, you know, to a to a new scale and a new scope. Um, so it can be much more broad based than simply you know burning the the next village over their you know their field. Um, anything that is connected, uh, you know, wired in this wired world can have a vulnerability that can be exploited. Um, it doesn't have to be in the immediate vicinity, you know, such as a, a naval blockade, right? You have to actually be there to blockade. Um, but uh, with cyber-enabled economic warfare, you can be halfway around the world um, and and launch a, a piece of malware into a system. Um, uh, but it also really does give an asymmetric advantage um, uh, to countries that are not, like the U.S., the number one economy in the world. Right? And and I like to to say that you know when you think about uh, what the West and and other other countries have done in terms of economic sanctions, rightfully so, against a country like North Korea um, for its nuclear and its missile program. I mean, they have a their per capita GDP is a few hundred dollars per person. The idea that they can take like-minded steps, like steps against the economy of of the United States or, or Western Europe or Australia is 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 nutty, except for when they use cyber means to do it. Well, and in North Korea's case, most citizens don't have an internet connection as mm, well. So that's true. it kind of reduces the play space. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. So when it comes to deterring or, or preventing cyber-enabled attacks against a state, particularly from one that is at an has that asymmetric advantage like North Korea, how should we be thinking about that? Because it's, as you said, it's not something we can necessarily do tit for tat here. We suffer because we are, in some sense, number one. Um, and because we do have such a potent economy and we have such connectivity. So how do we go about engaging in, in, in actually preventing these attacks. Right, right. So um, uh, first, I just want to, you know, level set that while North Korea is uh, a serious uh, actor in cyber-enabled economic warfare, um, clearly we're looking at China and Russia as the biggest threats in this space. Iran and North Korea um, are certainly up there, but but uh, potentially second tier. And, you know, so how do we live in this new space, right? And we're, we're really feeling our way through it. If this were 
you know, the Cold War. Um, maybe we're in 1951 or 1952. We're just beginning to actually create doctrine. We're, we're just beginning to create what does deterrence mean in this space. But there are a couple things that, that absolutely have to be done and, and have to be done with greater um, rapidity. Uh, just because we can't do everything doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing some things in terms of hardening the networks of the private citizenry and the private sector. Um, the, the U.S. government has uh, Cyber Command to defend .mil. Um, it has uh, DHS uh, to help pr uh, protect .gov. Um, there really isn't anybody out there helping to protect .com. And again, if you think in the U.S., we are the strongest military in the world because we are the strongest economy in the world, um, it, we better not forget that. Uh, so, you know, having the, the best tools, technologies, capabilities um, to close gaps uh, in cybersecurity uh, has to have a higher priority, not just for the biggest parts of the economy, but, but for those small, medium-sized enterprises, which really is the lifeblood um, of the greater economy and the supply chain that we all recognize. On. So when you put it that way, it seems really easy what the pathway mm. forward is. But I guess particularly as an Australian looking to the US, our impression is that the US is kind of a, you know, regulation can be anathema to the corporate sector in the US and particularly in the innovation sector. One of the ways which the US has got ahead is by having a an innovation sector with, uh, you know, a very, a very low light touch regulation regulatory approach from government. So when you're trying to navigate enabling innovation, but also putting standards or levels of protection in place for cybersecurity, what are some of the areas that we can have movement in there without necessarily, without it being a non-starter for the US political community? Yeah, so you know we're going to have to think about you know both sides of the equation, both frankly the regulation, um, the sticks, uh, so to speak. Uh, you know, right now regulated industries, um, uh, cleared contractors for the Pentagon are uh, SEC regulated uh, public companies are required um, to report breaches. You know, do they always have the wherewithal to know? Um, not clear. Do they always report? Who's monitoring? Not clear again. Um, and is the data, what's being done with the, the, the breach data? Is it being used not just for the U.S. government's sake to understand um, uh, the actions and capabilities of a nation state actor, but is it then being um, uh, used to help the private sector defend itself, right? In this, in this world, it has to be a two-way street, right? So yes, there should be, I believe, more pressure and, and potentially more regulations, but certainly more incentives on the private sector to get them to do what they know they should be doing in terms of protecting the most critical information, protecting their networks to the most robust standards. Um, but when the U.S. government comes calling and say, give us all your breach data, um, it is right for the U.S. private sector to say, yes, but how are you also going to help us. Right? Or I suppose, and will you share your uh, threat intelligence with us as well, which is a difficult thing for governments, I think, to share information with the private sector. But do you think that there's room to move to do that 
better in the unclassified there space? There is certainly room to, to do that better. Um, you know, the, the tools and capabilities to anonymize uh, data, to anonymize uh, uh, collection methods, um, uh, sources and methods um, can be done, should be done, so that the U.S. government also serves its purpose to protect and serve um, the, the people of the country, the businesses that underlie the foundation for prosperity, um, not just, you know, defending on the broader strategic national security level that has always kind of been thought these are, this is between nation state and nation state, right? Again, as I said, the private sector is on the front lines of this battle space. So just to round out the conversation then, you mentioned before the Cold War and, you know, we're, we're in back in the 1950s in a way of developing the strategic framework we're operating in. One of the most intriguing parts of your biography is your recent appointment to this cyberspace solarium commission, um, which I assume that's not a place people go to get a good suntan. Uh, what, what exactly <laughs> is that oh, really? all about? Oh, no. <laughs> I got it wrong then. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... so the the history of the original uh, Solarium Commission was President Eisenhower um, in the late 50s um, thought that uh, that uh, the U.S. had to uh, U.S. government had to kind of understand better what kind of world we were living in vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. Is it a world of containment? Is it a world of deterrence? Um, uh, Norm-based rules? What, you know, where are we? So uh, President Eisenhower directed uh, three competing teams that were given the same type of intelligence to then report out to him how would we direct the overarching strategy of the United States going forward in this battle in this Cold War against the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, there were those in Congress now that thought that conversation needs to be repeated in the cyberspace world. Um, and so under last year's National Defense Authorization Act, um, a bipartisan uh, commission was established, and we're just getting uh, rocking and rolling. Um, there are 10 members of the commission, uh, four are elected members of Congress, uh, six are outsiders, of whom I'm one, um, to kind of tackle uh, or attempt, hopefully, uh, you know, to tackle some of these of these big issues. What does deterrence look like in a cyber battle space where the battle's on? Um, very different than, uh, you know, against the Soviet Union, where it was a cold war. Um, some would say in the cyber realm, it's it's not so cold. Um, and so big questions like that, what does deterrence, what does containment mean? Uh, and so the role of allies and partners as well. And the, certainly the there, role yeah. of allies and, and partners in this integrated economy, um, but free market democracies um, can and should act potentially, you know, differently and certainly tighter together. Well, certainly we in Australia are really interested to keep watching what comes out of the the Solarium Commission because, as you say, this is a problem that faces um, economies that are integrated and also democracies um, writ large. Uh, Cyberspace isn't just... Uh, as much as we'd like it to be within the domestic control of one individual country. So it will be very fascinating to keep watching this space, Samantha Ravitch, uh, to see where we come to on, on cyberspace strategy. And so thank you very much for joining the National Security Podcast with us today. And we look forward to uh, continuing to watch this space. Oh, you're welcome. 
Well, that's all we have time for in our bumper economics and security podcast today. Really, for me, the takeout is the way in which we as national security professionals are increasingly going to struggle to grapple with dealing with issues of of security import that are actually owned by private sector actors. And for democracies in particular, uh, this is going to continue to be a pain point in national security policy because often those who are the most important actors or perhaps, perhaps even the victims of national security actions are not going to be government agencies or government officials anymore, but private citizens and private companies and often multinational companies that have no particular loyalty or allegiance to one nation state. So that's what I took away, but I'd love to hear what you're thinking. You can tweet to us uh, at Apps Policy Forum on Twitter. You can join our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, or you can even email us if you're a bit old school, podcast at policyforum.net. And we look forward to hearing your thoughts and speaking at you or to you from a podcast studio near you very soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.